the White Mall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Rowdy Delaney, Idaho, USA. The White Mall by Frank L. Packard. Chapter 16 The Secret Panel. Rhoda Gray hurried onward, back toward the garret, her mind in riot and dismay. It was not only the beginning of the end, it was very near the end. What was she to do? The Silver Sphinx, at eleven. That was the end, after eleven, wasn't it? She could impersonate Gypsy Nan. She could not, if she would, impersonate the woman who was dead. And then, too, there were the stolen jewels at old Jake Lurtz's. She could not turn to the police for help there, because then the pug might fall into their hands, and—and the pug was the adventurer. And then a sort of fatalistic calm fell upon her. If the masquerade was over, if the end had come, there remained only one thing for her to do. There were no risks too desperate to take now. It was she who must strike, and strike first. Those jewels in old Lurtz's bedroom became suddenly vital to her. They were tangible evidence. With those jewels in her possession, she should be able to force Dangler to his knees. She could get them, before Pinky Bon and the pug, if she hurried. Afterward, she would know where to find Dangler, at the Silver Sphinx. Nothing would happen to Clorin, because, through her failure to cooperate, the plan would be abortive. But veiled as the White Mall, she could pick up Dangler's trail again there. Yes, it would be the end one way or the other, between eleven o'clock and daylight. She quickened her steps. Old Lurtz would be inveigled away from his home about ten o'clock. At a guess, she made it only a little after nine now. She would need the skeleton keys in order to get into old Lurtz's place, and, yes, she would need a flashlight, too. Well, she would have time enough to get them, time enough, then, to run to the deserted shed in the lane behind the garret and change her clothes. Rhoda Gray, as Gypsy Nan, went on as speedily as she dared without inviting undue attention to herself, reached the garret, secured the articles she sought, hurried out again, and went down the lane in the rear to the deserted shed. She remained longer here than in the attic, perhaps ten minutes, working mostly in darkness, risking the flashlight only when it was imperative, and then, the metamorphosis complete, a veiled figure in her own person as Rhoda Gray, the white mall, she was out in the street again, and hastening back in the same general direction from which she had just come. She knew old Jake Lurtz's place, and she knew the man himself very intimately by reputation. There were few such men, and such places that she could have escaped knowing in the years of self-appointed service that she had given to the worst, and perhaps therefore the most needy element of New York. The man ostensibly conducted a little second-hand store. In reality, he probably shoved more stolen goods for his clientele, which at one time or another undoubtedly embraced every criminal in the underworld, than any other fence in New York. She knew him for an oily, cunning old fox who lived alone, in the two rooms over his miserable store, unless, of late, his young henchman, the crab, had taken to living with him though as far as that was concerned, it mattered little to-night, since the crab, for the moment, thanks to the game, was eliminated from consideration. She reached the second-hand store, and walked on past it. 
there was a light upstairs in the front window. Old Lurtz, therefore, had not yet gone out in response to the gang's fake message. She knew Old Lurtz's reputation far too well for that. The man would never go out and leave a gas-jet burning, which he would have to pay for. There was nothing to do but wait. Rhoda Gray sought the shelter of a doorway across the street. She was nervously impatient now. The minutes dragged along. Why didn't the man hurry and go out? About ten o'clock, Dangler had said, but that was very indefinite. Pinky Bon and the Pug might be as late as that, but equally they might be earlier. It seemed an interminable time. And then her eyes strained across the street upon the upper window. She drew still further back into the protecting shadows of the doorway. The light had gone out. A moment more passed. The street door of the house opposite to her, a door separate from that of the second-hand store, opened, and a bent, gray-bearded man stepped out, peered around, locked the door behind him, and shuffled down the street. Rhoda Gray scanned the dingy and ill-lighted little street. It was virtually deserted. She crossed the road and stepped into the doorway from which the old fence had just emerged. It was dark here, well out of the direct radius of the nearest street lamp, and, with luck, there was no reason why she should be observed, if she did not take too long in opening the door. She had never actually used a skeleton key in her life before, and she inserted one of her collection of keys in the lock. It would not work. She tried another, and still another, with mounting anxiety and perplexity. Suppose that, yes, the door was open now. With a quick glance over her shoulder, scanning the street in both directions to make sure that she was not observed, she stepped inside, closed the door, and locked it again. Her flashlight stabbed through the darkness. Narrow stairs immediately in front of her led upward. At her right was a connecting door to the second-hand shop. Without an instant's hesitation she ran up the stairs. There was no need to observe caution, since the place was temporarily untenanted. There was need only of haste. She opened the door at the head of the stairs, and, with a quick eager nod of satisfaction, as the flashlight swept the interior, stepped over the threshold. It was the room she sought, old Lurtz's bedroom. And now the flashlight played inquisitively about her. The bed occupied a position by the window. Across one corner of the room was a cretane hanging that evidently did service as a wardrobe. Across another corner was a large and dilapidated washstand. There were a few chairs and a threadbare carpet, and opposite the bed another door, closed, which obviously led into the front room. Rhoda Gray stepped to this door, opened it, and peered in. She was not concerned that it was evidently used for a kitchen, dining room, and the stowage of everything that overflowed from the bedroom. She was concerned only with the fact that it offered no avenue through which any added risk or danger might reach her. She closed the door as she had found it, and gave her attention now to the walls of old Lurtz's bedroom. She smiled a little whimsically. The crab had used a somewhat dignified term when he had referred to panels. True, the walls were of stained wood, but the wood was of the cheapest variety of matched boards, and the stain was of but a single coat, and a very meager one at that. The smile faded. There were a good many knots and there were four corners in the room, and therefore eight boards, each one of which answered the description of being the sixth panel. She went to the corner nearest her, and dropped down to her knees. As well start with this one. 
she had not dared press Dangler, or Dangler's deformed brother, for more definite directions, had she? She counted the boards quickly from the corner to her right, and then, the flashlight playing steadily, she began to press first one knot after another in the board before her, working from the bottom up. There were many knots. She went over each one with infinite care. There was no result. She turned then to the sixth board from the corner to her left. The result was the same. She stood up, her brows puckered, a sense of anxious impatience creeping upon her. She had been quite a while over these two boards, and it might be any one of the remaining six. Her eyes traversed the room, following the ray of the flashlight. If she only knew which one it would, was it an inspiration? Her eyes fixed on the cretane hanging across one of the far corners from the door, and she moved toward it quickly. The hanging might very well serve another purpose than that of merely a wardrobe. It seemed suddenly to be the most likely of the four corners, because it was ingeniously concealed. She parted the hanging. A heterogeneous collection of clothing hung from pegs and nails. Eagerly, hastily now, she brushed these aside, and, close to the wall, dropped to her knees again. The minutes passed. Twice she went over the sixth board from the corner to her right. She felt so sure now that it was this corner. And then, still eagerly, she turned to the corresponding board at her left. It was warm and close in here. The clothing hanging from the pegs and nails enveloped her, and with the cretane hanging itself shut out the air, what little of it there was, that circulated through the room. Over the board, from the tiniest knot to the largest, her fingers pressed carefully. Had she missed one anywhere? She must have missed one. She was sure the panel in question was here behind this hanging. Well, she would try again, and... What was that? In an instant the flashlight in her hand was out, and she was listening tensely. Yes, there was a footstep, two of them, not only on the stairs, but already just outside the door. It seemed as though a deadly fear, cold and numbing, settled upon her, and robbed her of even the power of movement. She was caught. If it was Pinky Bond and the pug, and if this corner hid the secret panel as she still believed it did, this was the first place to which they would come, and they would find her amongst the clothing, which had evidently been the cause of deadening any sound on those stairs out there until it was too late. She held her breath, her hands tight upon her bosom. There was no time to reach the sanctuary of the other room. The footsteps were already crossing the threshold from the head of the stairs. And then a voice reached out. The pugs. It was the pug and Pinky Bon. Strike a light, Pinky. There's no messin' around with a flash. The old geezer'll be back in a hop the minute he finds out he's been bunked, and the quicker we work the better. A match crackled into flame. An air-choked gas jet with a protesting hiss was lighted. And then Rhoda Gray's drawn face relaxed a little, and a strange, mirthless smile came hovering over her lips. What was she afraid of? The pug was the adventurer, wasn't he? This was one of the occasions when he could not escape the entanglements of the gang, and he must work for the gang instead of appropriating all the loot for his own personal and nefarious ends. But he was the adventurer. The white mall need not fear him, even though he appeared, linked with Pinky Bond, in the role of the pug. So there was only Pinky Bond to fear. Rhoda Gray took her revolver from her pocket. She was well armed, and in a more than material sense. 
the adventurer did not know that she was aware of the pug's identity. Her smile, still mirthless, deepened. She might even turn the tables upon them and still secure the stolen stones. She had turned the tables upon Pinky Bond last night. Tonight, if she used her wits, she could do it again. And then, suddenly, she stifled an exclamation as the pug's voice reached her again. What are yous gaping about? There ain't anything else worth pinching around here except what's in the old gent's safety vault. Get a move on. We ain't got all night. It's the corner behind the washstand. Give us a hand to move the furniture. It wasn't behind the cretane hanging. Rhoda Gray bit her lips in a crestfallen little way. Well, her supposition had been natural enough, hadn't it? She would have tried every corner before she was through if she had had the opportunity. She moved slightly now, without a sound, parting the clothing away from in front of her, and moving the cretane hanging by a fraction of an inch where it touched the side wall of the room. And now she could see the pug with his dirty and discolored celluloid eye-patch and his ingeniously contorted face, and she could see Pinky Bond's pasty white, drug-stamped countenance. It was not a large room. The two men in the opposite corner along the wall from her were scarcely more than ten feet away. They swung the washstand out from the wall, and the pug, going in behind it, began to work on the wallboards. Pinky Bon, an unlighted cigarette dangling from his lips, leaned over the washstand, watching his companion. A minute passed. Another. It was still in the room, except only for the distant sounds of the world outside, a clatter of wheels upon the pavement the muffled roar of the elevated, the clang of a trolley-bell. And then the pug began to mutter to himself. Rhoda Gray smiled a little grimly. She was not the only one, it would appear, who experienced difficulty with old Jake Lurtz's crafty hiding-place. "'Say, this is the limit,' the pug growled out suddenly. "'There's more damn knots in this board than I ever saw in any piece of wood in me life before, and—' He drew back abruptly from the wall." twisting his head sharply around. "'Do you hear that, Pinky?' he whispered tensely. "'Quick, put out the light. Quick, there's someone down at the front door.' Rhoda Gray felt the blood ebb from her face. She had heard nothing save the rattle and bump of a wagon along the street below, but she had had reason to appreciate on a certain occasion before that the pug, alias the adventurer, was possessed with a sense of hearing that was abnormally acute. If it was someone else— who was it? What would it mean to her? What complication here in this room would result? What? The light went out. Pinky Bond stepped silently across the room to the gas jet near the door. Her eyes strained. She could just make out the adventurer's form kneeling by the wall. And then, was she mad? Was the faint night lighting of the city filtering in through the window mocking her? The adventurer, hidden from his companion by the washstand, was working swiftly without a sound, or else it was a phantasm of shadows that tricked her. The adventurer thrust in his hand, drew out a package, and, leaning around, slipped it quickly into the bottom of the washstand, where with its little doors there was a most convenient and very commodious apartment. He turned again then, seemed to take something from his pocket, and placed it in the opening in the wall, and then closed the panel. It had scarcely taken more than a second. Rhoda Gray brushed her hand across her eyes. No, it wasn't a phantasm. She had misjudged the adventurer, 
quite misjudged him. The adventurer, even with one of the gang present, to furnish an unimpeachable alibi for him, was plucking the gang's fruit again for his own and undivided enrichment. Pinky Bond's voice came in a guarded whisper from the doorway. "'I don't hear nothing,' said Pinky Bond anxiously. The pug tiptoed across the room and joined his companion. She could not see them now, but apparently they stood together by the door listening. They stood there for a long time. Occasionally she heard them whisper to each other, and then finally the pug spoke in a less guarded voice. "'All right,' he said. "'I guess me nerves was getting to creeps. Shoot the light on again, and let's get back on de job. And yous take a turn this time pushing de knots, Pinky. Maybe yous'll have better luck.' The light went on again. Both men came back across the room, and now Pinky knelt at the wall while the pug leaned over the washstand, watching him. Pinky Bond was not immediately successful. The pug's nerves, of which he had complained, appeared shortly to get the better of him. "'For God's sake, hurry up,' he urged irritably. "'Or else let me take a crack at it, Pinky, and—' A low, triumphant exclamation came from Pinky Bond, as the small door in the wall swung suddenly open. "'There she is, my bucko,' he grinned. "'Some nifty vault, eh? "'The old guy—' "'He stopped. "'He had thrust his hand in and drawn it out again. "'His fingers gripped a sheet of notepaper, "'but he was seemingly unconscious of that fact. "'He was leaning forward, staring into the aperture. "'It's empty,' he choked. "'What's that?' cried the pug, "'and sprang to his companion's side. "'Yous are crazy, Pinky.' "'He thrust his head toward the opening.' and then turned and stared for a moment helplessly at Pinky Bond. "'So help me,' he said heavily. "'It's—it's empty.' He shook his fist suddenly. "'The crab's handed us one, that's what. But the crab'll get his for—' "'It wasn't the crab.' Pinky Bond was stuttering his words. He stood, jaws dropped, his eyes glued on the paper in his hand. The pug, his face working— the personification of baffled rage and intolerance leered at Pinky Bond. "'Well, what is it, then?' he snarled. Pinky Bond licked his lips. "'The White Mall!' he licked his lips again. "'The White Mall!' echoed the pug incredulously. "'Yes,' said Pinky Bond. "'Listen to what's on this paper I fished out of there. I listen. "'She's got all the nerve of the devil. "'With thanks and most grateful appreciation, the White Mall!' The pug snatched the paper from Pinky Bond's hand, as though to assure himself that it was true. Rhoda Gray smiled faintly. It was good acting, very excellently done, seeing the pug had written the note and placed it in the hiding-place himself. "'My God!' mumbled Pinky Bond thickly. "'I ain't afraid of most things, but I'm getting scared of her. She ain't human. Last night you know what happened, and the night before, and—' He gulped suddenly— "'Let's get out of here,' he said hurriedly. The pug made no reply, except for a muttered growl of assent and a nod of his head. The two men crossed the room. The light went out. Their footsteps echoed as they descended the stairs, then died away. And then Rhoda Gray moved for the first time. She brushed aside the cretan hanging, ran to the washstand, possessed herself of the package she had seen the pug place there, and made her way cautious now of the slightest sound downstairs she tried the door that led into the second-hand shop from the hall found it unlocked and with a little gasp of relief slipped through and closed the door gently behind her 
she did not dare risk the front entrance. Pinkie Bon and the pug were not far enough away yet, and she did not dare wait until they were. Too bulky to take the risk of attempting to conceal it about his person, while with Pinkie Bon, the pug, it was obvious, would come back alone for that package, and it was equally obvious that he would not be longed in doing so. There was old Lurtz's return that he would have to anticipate. It would not take wits nearly so sharp as those possessed by the pug to find an excuse for separating promptly from Pinkie Bon. Rhoda Gray groped her way down the shop, groped her way to the back door, unbolted it, working by the sense of touch, and let herself out into the back yard. Five minutes later she was blocks away, and hurrying rapidly back toward the deserted shed in the lane behind Gypsy Nan's garret. Her lips formed into a tight little curve as she went along. There was still work to do tonight, if this package really contained the stolen legacy of gems left by Angel Jack. She had first of all to reach the place where she could examine the package with safety, then a place to hide it where it would be secure, and then Dangler. She gained the lane, stole along it, and disappeared into the shed through the broken door that hung partially open on sagging hinges. Here she sought a corner, and crouched down so that her body would smother any reflection from her flashlight. And now, eagerly, feverishly, she began to undo the package and then, a moment later, she gazed, stupefied and amazed, at what lay before her. Precious stones, scores of them, nestled on a bed of cotton. They were of all colors and of all sizes, but each one of them seemed to pulsate and throb, and from some wondrous, glorious depth of its own seemed to fling back the white ray upon a thousand rays in return, as though into it had been breathed a living and immortal fire and Rhoda Gray crouched there, stared, until suddenly she grew afraid, and suddenly, with a shudder, she wrapped the package up again. These were the stones for whose fabulous worth the woman whose personality she, Rhoda Gray, had usurped, had murdered a man. These were the stones which were indirectly the instrumentality, since but for them Gypsy Nan would never have existed, that made her, Rhoda Gray, tonight, now, at this very moment, a hunted thing, homeless, friendless, fighting for her life against police and underworld alike. She rose abruptly to her feet. She had no longer any need of the flashlight. There was even light of a sort in the place. She could see the stars through the jagged holes in the roof, and through one of these, too, the moonlight streamed in. The shed was all but crumbling in a heap. Underfoot, what had once been flooring, was now but rotting, broken boards. Under one of these, beside the clothing of Gypsy Nan, which she had discarded a little while before, she deposited the package, and then she stepped out into the lane, and from there to the street again. And now she became suddenly conscious of a great and almost overpowering physical weariness. She did not quite understand at first, unless it was to be attributed to the reaction from the last few hours, and then, smiling wanly at herself, she remembered. For two nights she had not slept. It seemed very strange. That was it, of course. Though she was not in the least sleepy now, just tired, just near the breaking point. But she must go on. Tonight was the end, anyhow. Tonight, failing to keep her appointment as Bertha, the crash must come. 
but before it came as the white mall, armed with the knowledge of the crime that had driven Dangler's wife into hiding, and which was Dangler's crime too, and with the evidence in the shape of those jewels in her possession, she and Dangler would meet somewhere, alone. Before the law got him, when he would be closed-mouthed and struggling with all his cunning to keep the evidence of other crimes from piling up against him, and damning whatever meagre chances he might have to escape the penalty for Deemer's murder, she meant, yes, even if she pretended to compound a felony with him, to force, or to inveigle from him, it mattered little which, a confession of the authorship and details of the scheme to rob Skarbolov that night when she, Rhoda Gray, in answer to a dying woman's pleading, had tried to forestall the plan, and had been caught, apparently, in the act of committing the robbery herself. With that confession in her possession, with the identity of the unknown woman who had died in the hospital that night established, her own story would be believed. And so, if she were weary, what did it matter? It was only until morning. Dangler was at the Silver Sphinx now, with the man he meant that she should help him murder, only, only that would fail, because there would be no Bertha to lure the man to his death, and she, Rhoda Gray had only to keep track of Dangler until somewhere, where he lived, perhaps, she should have that final scene, that final reckoning with him alone. It was a long way to the Silver Sphinx, which she knew, as everyone in the underworld, and everyone in New York who was addicted to slumming knew, was a combination dance-hall and restaurant in the Chatham Square district. She tried to find a taxi, but without avail. A clock in a jeweler's window which she passed showed her the time was ten minutes after eleven. She had had no idea that it was so late. At eleven, Dangler had said. Dangler would be growing restive. She took the elevated. If she could risk the protection of her veil in the Silver Sphinx, she could risk it equally in an elevated train. But, in spite of the elevated, it was, she knew, well on towards half-past eleven, when she finally came down the street in front of the Silver Sphinx. From under the veil, she glanced, half-curiously, half in a sort of grim irony, at the taxis lined up before the dance-hall. The two leading cars were not taxis at all, though they bore the earmarks, with their registers, of being public vehicles for hire. They were large, roomy, powerful, and looked, with their hoods up, like privately owned motors. Well, it was of little account. She shrugged her shoulders as she mounted the steps to the dance-hall. Neither Bertha nor Clorin would use those cars to-night. End of chapter 16